Hi, I'm Trenton Stander. Hi, I'm Tim Brown. And, and this is the Open Heart Cast. And we're back. We're coming to you live from Rudepoort at Trenton's humble workshop with way too much nice shit compared to my <laughs> workshop. <laughs> So what's happening, dude? What's happening, Shana? How's it going, my bro? Uh, it's going fully, dude. Fully. Oh, liquor. 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 Liquor, my bro. Yeah, so in the last week, we created a group for the podcast. Yes. And we asked, you know, what do guys want us to talk about? And a guy, Alan, who he's actually bought a couple of knives from me before, suggested a topic of... Knife care, sharpening tips, and metal types for different cutting applications. Yes. So, Trenton, what's your opinion on knife care? We're specifically going to talk about carbon steel uh, and not so much stainless or vegan steel because that's not our specialities. Yes. Yes. So, I think carbon steel. Let's start with kitchen knife. How do you look after the knife? You're asking me. Sorry, I'm just going live right now because oh, I'm, I'm just fuck. saying questions from viewers. Um, what about that? Yeah, sorry, guys. So uh, I'll get with the question in a few minutes. Here we yeah. go. Here we go. We're live. We're live on Facebook. Well, starting the live at least. Hello, Facebook. Yes. Hello, everybody. So we're just in the middle of recording the open podcast, and we thought we'd get you guys on board. So uh, this section of the podcast, we'll kind of have to, well, I think we can just leave it in there. Just blend it in. Yeah, we'll blend it in. So we had a question on uh, from one of our listeners on the face, Facebook group. Um, metal care sharpening tips and metal types for different cut, cutting applications. Yes. Yes. So yeah, um, we're not going to deal with vegan steel or stainless because it's not our forte of knowledge. Yeah. Um, all we know is it's called stainless, not stain never. Yes, yes. That's, that's what we know. I brought um, that up to a boss of mine for an old job that I had. We'd had to do some maintenance on work on this real rich fucker's uh, hydraulic shafts that came out of the ground. That sounds so bad. <laughs> These fucking hydraulic shafts that come out of the ground. To stop cars. To, to stop them, like, hijacking your car or reversing behind you and shit. Anyway... And we had this this stain on the uh, on the stainless steel, and the client was giving me shit, and he's like, "Oh, this is supposed to be made out of stainless steel. You guys are cheaping us out and whatnot." But what happened was it was a transformation. Uh, 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 it was residual rust that was coming off of the screw at the top, and it was mm. just staining the steel. It wasn't, and this was over a very long period of time. Yeah, it so it it does happen. <clears throat> Where this this rust will look like it's rusting, but it's well to my understanding of it, I have a very basic understanding of it, but it's it's it's, it's a transferal of material onto a it's yeah. not, not necessarily to say that it's, it's rusting. It's not the stainless steel it's rusting, it's rust from a, a carbon source, but yeah. or a carbon based steel source that's like staining the surface. Because it's stainless, not stain never. Yes, and I'm not saying that stainless steel can't rust. That's not what I'm saying. I don't know much about it, but I think stainless steel can rust. I mean, at it least... It depends on the environment. It depends on the environment to a large degree and, so, and the amount of time. And different stainlesses are... Like some stainlesses are fine with 
say, hydrochloric, some aren't. So it depends on the grade of stainless steel as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're used for different applications, water, sewage, acid, acids. Right. Yeah. But let's get back to the question. Knife care. Knife carbon care steel. for carbon steels. In my opinion, my very basic, uh, what I do, I'm not saying it's the best thing to do. I think there's guys out there with much better advice than what I'm going to be able to give you. But uh, in, in terms of knife maintenance, what I would do, like, what I would do with my bushcrafting knives is I would just have a field strop that I would carry around with me, mm. and I had some compound in it for the bag, and that would be my my edge maintenance kit mm. that I would carry. And I'm mm. and there's a lot you could add to that. Mm. There's a lot you, you could subtract to that. Mm. But like, I always used to have olive oil because I was cooking with my I was cooking all the time in the bush, mm. and some olive oil or flour, uh, like sunflower oil or whatever. If I had that, that's the oil I had, and that's what I would use to maintain all my tools with. Yeah. Now, if you're talking about longer term trips where you're doing trips for a, a couple of months, mm. then you actually want to start taking sharpening stones. You want to start taking mm. fucking wet stones, depending on the sharpening that you think you're going to need over this extended period of time, or a fucking Lansky's field sharpener. If that'll do, that's fine. But it's like the same as like, like in a kitchen, you have a have a steel. Yes. Which is therefore edge maintenance. Yes. And that's it. Sort of straightens the edge and put you know, hones it a little bit. Um, but after a while, you're going to have to get the water stones or the oil stones out, and you're going to have to put the edge back on. Yes. And then you maintain it with a strop or a steel or something like that. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, so that's the thing. Like with 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 field sharpening, I would say in terms of bushcraft at least, that's what I would carry. If I was going on a long trip, I would carry an oil stone with me that had a fine grit on, on mm. one side at least. And then I had a strop where I had two different compounds. Mm. I had a very uh, like medium grain uh, compound and mm. then a, a fine, fine um, – it's it's uh, autosol autosol fucking paste. metal metal polish Met, metal polish yeah. so I use that on the other side of the sheath and I mm. find a couple of strokes like that after sharpening it on the water on the oil stone which is not often but if you're going for a longer period of time mm. it's worth taking with you just now you you put a chip in the edge or something happens something. and your 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 bushcrafting knife or your bush knife is your most important tool if you are camping for a yeah. long period of time. It's not. The most important tool is you. Then it's the knife. <laughs> sure. 100%. But I'm saying in terms of mm. kit that you mm. carry, like obviously in terms of you need to have a knowledge of what you're going to be doing and how long you're going to be doing it, how long you're going to be using your knife, are you going to be using it every day? Mm. Is, is it going to be something that you're going to be constantly using? In terms of bushcraft, Yes. If you are practicing bushcraft specifically, mm. uh, even if you're doing outdoors uh, tasks in general, you're still going to use your belt knife a lot. Mm. So it's worth having a maintenance knowledge based on how to maintain your edge efficiently and to the degree that that edge needs to be maintained at. Mm. Like you can take it home and put a much refined, a much more refined edge on it. Mm. But in terms of what are you willing to carry for the weight mm. and what are you what what edge geometry are you looking for mm. is it a very precise edge geometry 
then you might want to take a variety of water stones with you if you mm. want to get fancy. Rain Mears did a whole discussion on this with bushcrafting knives. Mm. And um, you can look into that yourself. But Rain Mears had a whole system that he carried if he was going on long excursions. Yes. So so you would have a couple of water stones with mm. him. But he was carrying, he had conveyance, he had a large truck that he was mm. going out and all these excursions. So like but there's videos out there where you can minimize that kit down mm. and there's sharpening systems out there some of them are very good some of them are very shit mm. you got to just find out and in these bushcraft groups on facebook like uh, the living living to learn community uh, my good friend joe price is a, a representative and an ambassador i think of of uh, living to learn paul smith another good friend of mine mm. is uh is a uh, ambassador of mm. the living to learn group so these are all guys that have very uh, some of them are more gear orientated and some of them are more like primitive school primitive style bushcrafting practices in the, in the modern day life um and he he has a lot of knowledge on like primitive fire making primitive fire making techniques that are extremely interesting I mean, um, I think some has guys a lot, also, a lot of knowledge on it. Like you say, they they specialize, say, on kit, and other guys specialize on skill or basic or primal skills. And it's not to say one is better than the other. It's not to say that one is better than the other. Some guys are extremely orientated toward the modern kit mm. and making one's life easier with modern technologies that we've developed and shit like that, which is not wrong. It's not wrong to do that. But there are guys out there who enjoy practicing the more primitive side of ancient skills that we have we have seen in our past. Like we see atlatl points that, that guys find in the States. We see arrowheads that are found by soil by by guys find, finding it in the soil. And all of these primitive fucking tools that we know were out there, mm. these guys who like to practice that shit, mm. and they become extremely good at it. And mm. what, like, what's so incredibly cool about that is you start getting to talk to people who have an understanding of the mind of the primitive man, mm. because they understand the same problems. Like, if mm. you're flint napping, it's a very specific thing that you learn mm. and you start getting into a mindset of primitive people who had to figure out the same shit to make tools that they could use to hunt and survive. Mm. Like you start getting into that mindset mm. and we can't talk to anybody today that really has an authentic background mm. in that lifestyle, yeah. but we do have people doing it now. Mm. And it must be incredibly interesting to listen to the psyche, like how the psyche works of that mm. person. Like their mentality when they go into this place is like completely tribal. Mm. And I think that must be so, it must bring different things to light in mm. you. Like mm. living a life that's so basic mm. in its. Less is more. Yeah, less is more. But you're also working extremely hard to survive. Mm. and understand how to refine weapons and refine edges on rock and, and shit like that. It's incredible. Mm. And you've got people practicing this, like um, Ryan Gill from Hunt Primitive, Matt Graham, 
Uh, they both hunt with atlatls. They both hunt with bows, uh, throwing sticks, boomerangs. Um, I, I don't know so much about Ryan Gill with boomerangs. I should imagine he would have some experience with it. Or there's another one. Uh, it's not a boomerang. It's a fucking stick. Kilpi, I want to say, or Kilgi. I can't remember what it is, but it's also a type of boomerang, but it's not the one that comes back. It's the one used for killing. It's the one used for taking out large prey like the red kangaroo, which the prestigious Aboriginal hunter could achieve. Hmm. And I think the boomerang was more, it's like as you're growing up, you start with a basic tool. Mm. So you can learn the skills needed for the more advanced tool. So like when, the, say in a tribe, say the kids when they're small, they get a small basic, they build themselves a small basic little bow. And as they mature, then they make a slightly better bow. And then when they get to that level of hunting, then they have an uh, even better bow. It's the same 100%. As, like the boomerang was probably used for small stuff, but also it's, learning and refining that skill practice what they would do just adding to what you just said but what little uh, children little boys specifically would play with boomerangs when they were young mm. and they what you would do is you would throw the boomerang and either somebody else would catch it or you would catch it yourself mm. and they would play this game with boomerangs and in doing that they start learning how to throw a projectile in a certain way that gives mm. you a certain result because what's the result with with throwing it? It's that it comes back to you in an efficient way, mm. like that you don't have to go running after it necessarily. Mm. I'm not saying it wasn't that, but like you start understanding how to throw things a certain way to get a certain result. Mm. And they also used to use boomerangs uh, to keep ground foul to thinking that there was a a bird of prey coming in. So they mm. used that to sort of either guide them or mm. distract them or mm. whatever it was or to keep them down mm. and scurry. And, and, and they could have used nets to involve mm. that where they direct them in a certain way and mm. then they trap them. They trap them. Mm. So they were very effective in hunting, mm. but also this other type of boomerang, which I can't mm. remember the name of at the moment. That's why mm. we needed Jamie. Yeah. Um, it was used primarily as a killing, like precision killing device. Mm. And like, I want to say it's something like 160 meters, something like that, that they could take prey out at that distance. Like, I'm not 100% mm. sure of that, but it was some ridiculous number. Maybe 60 meters. I don't know. Don't know. It could be... I could be wrong on that one, but it was significant. It mm. was significant. It was it was quite a large distance. Well, I mean, the, um, like uh, the Bushmen or the Khoisan or whatever they want to call themselves now, they they do endurance hunting. So they basically yes. run the animal down mm. until the animal is so tired that they can actually get an arrow in or it dies of exertion because yeah. animals – Animals cannot run and regulate their heat, their, their body core temperature, while they're running. Yes. Breathing. yes. Whereas people can. Yes. And I think the only other animal that can, to a certain extent, is a, a dog. Well, 
Hold on. What do you mean by that? Animals have the ability to do what? They don't have the ability to regulate their heat, their core temperature while they're running. Okay. So they can't pant. Hmm. Which is what they use to cool. They use the air that they breathe in and out to cool the blood vessels, which then lowers the core. Okay. Okay. All right. We as humans, we've evolved to, to be... Because we're not the fastest, yes, we evolved to be the one that can run the furthest. Which is it's that's the difference between say lions hunting, where it's very short distance ambush, or wild dogs that are long term. They in it for the long run. Mm-hmm. They basically run their prey down until they're tired, because of the size difference, and then they bring it down like that. Mm. Okay, I see what you're saying. Mm. Um, yeah, well, that's why Buck looked fucking exhausted after they've after they've been chased by a fucking lion. Mm. They look they like as soon as the lion gets hold of them in a proper way, mm. they start. I mean, yeah, sometimes they they've mm. still got a lot of fight left in them. But if it's after a good long chase, mm. they they don't. And I mean, look, these cats also can't keep that speed up for for a very prolonged period of time. That's why they they um, use sort of ambush technique. So they'll have a few that initiate the chase and then yes. they have others set up for, yes. the, for the takedown. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, they also, I mean, these prides and, and different animals that, mm. that are, are animals that, that prey on other animals, mm. like uh, carnivorous animals, mm. um, especially in like a, like a, a, a pride of lions mm. or like, a pack of dogs or whatever they mm. they just like depending on their environment their mm. prey and how mm. the environment works within those mm. compounds like they start developing systems of efficiently taking down prey mm. in like a very planned mm. manner mm. and that's that's what's so amazing about life on this planet is that you get diversity because you get different Mm. animals that are of the same group in different areas Mm. and they all have different things that they develop and they've got different roles to play and they've got different roles to play and Mm. and they've like very very interesting to look into animal behavior Mm. and those same animals in different areas yeah like animal behavior from both those different sides it's it's kind of like how culture developed like Mm. in a way you've got this group but you've got the same group essentially but in a different area and Mm. their beliefs can be totally different Mm. how they operate the the... it's it's fucking crazy man yeah anyway um so let's what was the next question on Um, uh the i was thinking also knife key if it's a kitchen knife Mm. uh, a bit of Cooking oil, I suppose, will keep it the keep the rust off. Sure. But the the better thing to do would be to get um, some food safe mineral oil because it's thinner. Mm-hmm. And you just when you're finished with the knife, you just wipe it off, and you put some oil on, and you yeah. do it. You let the patina develop because the patina on the steel is, is eventually what's going to protect it. It will protect it. Yeah. As long as it's grey or black or mm. blue and not orange or red. Yeah. Because then it's rust. Yeah. And it's a different oxide, basically. (laughs) It is. And then the other thing I would say is, like, if you know you're going to be cutting, using this knife, let's say it's a high-carbon steel knife, Mm. um, 
you know, if you're going to be using, look, depending on the steel, mm. also there's main different types of carbon steel. So mm. this is in a framework. Let's say it's something like 1095. Yeah, okay? plain carbon. Uh, <clears throat> what I would say with the 1095 uh, hunting blade, mm. if you're going to be using it for skinning animals, I would say probably maintain it quite frequently. Mm. Like that, that would be a good idea. And if and you can do that. Don't store a knife in a sheath. Okay. Uh, if it's a leather sheath. Okay. The reason is the chemicals in the leather mm. and the leather attracts moisture and it causes corrosion of the blade. So if you're not using a knife for a long time, take it out the sheath, mm. oil it, and let it sit in a safe place. And when you use it, then you put it in the sheath. Because mm. long term, the sheath attracts moisture and the chemicals in the dyeing and stuff yeah. can leach out onto the blade and, and cause it mm. to start corroding. I hadn't thought of that, to be honest with you. Yeah. That's that's a good point. All right. You know, to be honest with you, that makes a hell of a lot of sense, mm. but I didn't think about that. Mm. That's that's great. That's great advice. So, yeah, so store it in a place where the, maybe the sheath is or next to it. Uh, next to it, and then you just store it in a safe place where you, nobody can get hurt. Yeah, in a pouch mm. so that it doesn't fall. Or a rolled cloth or something like yeah. that. Um but yeah, so so do do edge do edge maintenance and and just blade maintenance in general mm. in terms of oiling it and things like that. Mm. <clears throat> just make sure there's no spot rust developing because mm. I think that can start really digging into the steel over time. Yeah. Um, and just check up on it. Mm. You know, it's like your body; you gotta check up on it every now. Yeah, every now and then, your kidneys you start giving you shit. Like, <laughs> so in any case. Mm. Um, what else were we going to talk about? We were going to go get coffee. Yeah. Um, but this is mm. this has been fun, yeah, guys. But we're going to – I think we might uh, cut it here. Yeah, I think we're going to cut it here. And we'll then, get back to uh, questions again in the next episode. Yes. Um, so, so just to bring out the viewers who, who had some of the great questions, yeah. it was um, – I'll Alan, just get them up there, bro. Sorry, you had that, you had that on. Was Alan uh, Alan Rydell? Rydell. Yeah. So Alan Rydell, and then uh, Wayne uh, Wilmot. Yeah, he asked about different edges and edge geometry for different types of knives. Yes. So he had an experience where he gave a kitchen knife to someone who specified they want something with a fine edge for slicing. They wanted it for slicing. Mm. And then they phoned him the next day and said, no, his knife is crap because they were cutting through chicken bone and a chipped edge, which is what you'd expect from a slicer because it's made to slice, not to break bone. Mm. So it's got a much finer edge than, say, a cleaver. 100%. And you can get knives in between, but remember, if you are good for many things, you're not very good at one thing. Yes. So it's the jack of all, master of none. Yeah. So if you want something for fine cutting, then you have a fine cutting knife. If you're gonna, if you want to break by or break up a chicken, mm. you use a knife with a, a a stronger edge, but it won't be as nice a slicer. Yeah. As yeah. nice a slicer. Mm. We should make a shirt with that. Nicer slicer. Yeah, nicer slicer. I like that. <laughs> we should do that. Um, I, I think I think another thing just to that's worth mentioning is that I mean, like as you were saying, mm. uh, but this is specific to the to the bushcraft industry, and this is what Tim and I were talking about earlier. 
is that um, if you're going to have something like a one-tool one option mm. for your bushcrafting experience, that is very – that's fine. Like you can you can have a specific blade profile that works for a multiple uh, a lot of tasks, mm. and 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 it will do them relatively well, and you will be able to manipulate that knife as you learn how to use it mm. more efficiently within its like within its limitations, of course. Mm. But the more you use knives, the more you develop an understanding about how to be more proficient with that style of knife, mm. okay? Especially within the bushcrafting community and other uh, other mm. trades like uh, fucking... Blacksmithing. You've got... Uh, I've got probably, I think, seven hammers on my on my anvil stand. Yeah. And I use every single one of them. Yeah. For different purposes. For Look, different you can purposes. get by with one... 100%. With so. a... Uh, What's it? Cross beam at, at one kilo cross beam. Yeah, you can get by with it, but if you want to draw out big heavy material, mm. it's gonna take you a fucking long time because it's mm. a small hammer. Yeah, but at the same time, if you've got a six pounder, it's not really good for putting in a refined bevel on the edge. Sure, on the edge. sure. So it's sure. it's horses for courses. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. Yeah. So so th I mean that's the point. I mean you you. As, as you use knives in any fucking industry, you get to learn more refined things for different purposes, mm. you know. Um, and in any case, the whole point with bushcrafting is that you can have a one-tool option. But I don't think, from my experience, I don't think you can get one knife that will do you everything as proficiently as possible. Mm. If you're trying to make a bowl... Now, if you're wanting a much refined, much more refined tool for that task, you want something like a fucking spoon knife, right? Mm. You, you don't want to be fucking around trying to make a bowl with the edge of your knife. That's going to fucking damage the edge of your knife. Like it's going to take trying, a long time. It's, it's, it's going to take a while. Mm. I'm not saying it can't be done because there are ways of just getting by and making mm. a quick bowl mm. um, by carving out a section in a piece of wood Mm. putting coals in there and, and burning it in. You can definitely do that. Mm. But a spoon knife works so much quicker. A spoon knife is better, right? But then again, it's also an extra piece of it's, kit. It's an extra piece of kit. So so you've got to understand what your capabilities mm. are going to be out there with mm. the tools that you're willing to carry versus the tools that you have. That relates very well back to life because you have to decide – what you're willing to suffer for. Oh, you're killing me, bro. This is so good. <laughs> so I think oh, this is where we the, should cut it. Oh, man. This this is... And we're going to go get some coffee. Uh, so we're going to cut the live feed. Yeah. And just pause the recording. Yeah. Get some coffee. And then we'll be back on the recording, but not on live. Yes. Yes. Okay. So... Thank you. Thank you for joining, guys. Much appreciated. Mm. We will. Uh, so that was basically the episode of Shock Talk. Yeah. That is 26 minutes. Yeah. I hope people have time for that. If yeah. you don't, I'm sorry for you, but that's about as short as it gets. Yeah, right? we're very good at staying on topic. Yes. Well, terribly, terribly, <laughs> terribly bad at that. Okay. We're so working on our podcast as we go, guys. We're kind of feeling it out with you. Mm. We. This is our first episode that is this short, I think. Mm. And has stuck to a reasonably mm. 
reasonably straight Larry. like yeah i'm a bit high too so like i'm trying to yeah say things it's fairly knife related it's fairly knife Not related and this is our first episode of shop talk, shop talk. Yeah, so this episode is called shop talk mm. questions from viewers yeah right so uh, and or listeners or whatever we choose to call it but thank you guys yeah whatever they identify as sweet yes yeah, sweet <laughs> sweet <laughs> lucky guys lucky guys chat soon Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Open Hearthcast. Find us on Instagram at Open Hearthcast and we'll see you again real soon.